I'm Nicola Kelly, and this is Silenced, a podcast from human rights organisation Article 19. In each episode of this series, we'll hear the stories of journalists and activists around the world whose governments attempt to rein them in and cover up the truth. As Russia continues to attack cities and towns across Ukraine, journalists like Olga Tokayuk are engaged in their own battle to get impartial information out to the world about what's really going on there. Speaking from a bomb shelter in the west of Ukraine, Olga describes here the threats facing journalists covering the invasion, efforts to ensure a free media space, and the far-reaching tentacles of the Russian propaganda machine. On the 24th of February, I woke up about like 5 a.m. in the morning and immediately reached for my phone, checking the news. Because in the days before, the situation was really deteriorating. Uh, there was a decision of President Putin to recognize uh, self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk regions and something was building up in the air. So I reached for my phone as I did on all the previous days and I went to a website of a news agency, Interfax, one of the biggest Ukrainian news agencies. And I still have these headlines, you know, in front of my eyes saying that. Dawn in a European capital, a missile hits a block of flats. Missiles targeted Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine and that Putin made a speech in the night announcing basically the war. They called it special military operation, but it was clear that it's a war. And even more worryingly, among the headlines were objects in Western Ukraine were targeted too. Ivano-Frankivsk airport, not too far from the place where we are staying. So it was clear that it would be a war which would engulf much of Ukraine's territory. From those initial headlines, it was clear that, you know, even this western part of Ukraine might not be as safe as we hoped it would be. Still, we decided we are not going anywhere, also because in that day we reached out to a lot of our friends who are in Kyiv in other parts of Ukraine, asking how they are and offering them that they can come and stay here with us because we had some spare rooms. And in the next two or three days, basically, we didn't have any spare rooms anymore because people arrived from other parts of Ukraine who stayed with us and and they are still staying here. And also our vacation, which was supposed to last a couple of days, is not a vacation anymore. We've been here for more than a month and we don't know how long we will be staying here. But the idea is to stay in Ukraine as long as it is safe in this particular area. Well, of course, it's relatively safe. There are sirens and... We have to go to, you know, bomb shelters and basements every day, basically, sometimes in the middle of the night. Actually, I'm speaking now from a bomb shelter, from a basement of our house. We try to make it comfortable since we have to spend a lot of time here. So, you know, we put on some inflatable mattresses to sleep on and also made here basically a place to be able to work from with internet so we're trying to, you know, readjust our lives to this new reality, which I personally still struggle to accept. 
in my brain. I understand rationally like that there is war and that I can't go back to Kyiv, to the city I lived in for 20 years, that I love, that I consider my home. But sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I feel like I'm, I'm still in my flat in Kyiv, I'm in my bed. And then like the reality sinks in and I'm like, no, I'm not there. And there is war in my country and I don't know when I will be able to go back. And so many people have died and they are so much worse off than me, you know, like staying in this relatively safe part of Ukraine, knowing that my family members are safe and sound. This is the privilege not many people in Ukraine have at the moment. At first, the sirens were really quiet and in, not in all parts of the town, people were able to hear them. So where we are staying in this part of the town, they were audible, but they are somehow keep getting more loud and loud like every time because the, also the local authorities, they are installing the loudspeakers so you know people everywhere can hear the siren. And we also installed apps on our mobile phones like an alert that even if you don't hear the siren outside, then you hear it on your mobile, you know, wailing sometimes in the middle of the night, waking you up. It's impossible to miss it. And uh, somehow it has become almost something you're already used to, you know, like we do not panic, like I do not panic, we know what to do, like even, even kids, they know what to do. And then there is another siren when it's all over. And there is a, this uh, reassuring voice of uh, one of Ukrainian officials that you can go back to a normal life. It's supposed to be reassuring, but you know that your normal life basically now is a time between one siren and another. Since 2014, Russia launched a really huge disinformation campaign aimed at Ukraine. And, you know, it was targeting different audiences, the audience inside Russia, audience inside Ukraine, but also audience abroad in the West with the goal to undermine support to Ukraine. And they were focusing on several narratives that are still persistent and that they are voiced now increasingly also by Russian officials, by Russian president. So one of these narratives was that Ukraine is a country full of Nazis, uh, far-right elements, and therefore you know, it's not a country that is a part of a civilized world and other countries you know, shouldn't like deal with it. Another narrative was that Ukraine is a failed state. And basically, it's like very corrupt. Nothing is functioning in Ukraine and therefore not worthy of the Western support. And of course, like a narrative about alleged uh, human rights violations uh, against like Russian speaking population or Russian nationals or people of Russian ethnicity in Ukraine. Well, all these narratives were like really overblown by Russian propaganda and disinformation, and they penetrated also in a big part the Western discourse on, on Ukraine. Because while there is some truth to each of these narratives, it is not true that these problems were as acute and as grave as Russia presented them. And I think the fact that, uh, you know, these narratives were circulating basically unrefuted and undebunked for so long inside Russia, first of all. I think this was also one of the reasons that made this war and this invasion possible, because Russian propaganda machine has been basically dehumanizing Ukrainians, speaking about them as, as Nazis, sometimes even using really degrading words, such as like insects and cockroaches, something that, you know, has been used before, like in Rwanda genocide in other places. 
I think that the responsibility of the propaganda machine and the workers of Russian media, whom I cannot call journalists, in this war is also very, very big and it shouldn't be underestimated. And this is something that should be dealt with after this war is over. Because the way they were preparing like Russian society for this war, you know, spreading hatred towards Ukraine and also spreading these lies about Ukraine on a global level, this is an important factor in what is happening now. And, you know, it shouldn't be overlooked and the lessons should be drawn from that. And those responsible for that should be held accountable because the war is not only waged on the battlefield with tanks and military vehicles and missiles and you know, air defense systems. It's also waged in the media space. And Russia has been waging this war against Ukraine at least since 2014, when it understood that Ukraine is slipping away from them and they are not able to control it the way they used to, like by having their nationals and their control over basically every sector of Ukraine, like the economy, politics, media. They lost it in 2014 and they launched this uh, huge propaganda against Ukraine aiming to somehow bring Ukraine back under their control. And when they saw it failed, they launched a full-scale war. My colleagues who are working in the zone of active combat, they are risking a lot. And actually, some of them already have been killed in this war. At least like two people that I knew personally, they, they died. They were killed by Russian missiles and Russian bullets. These are cameramen, one a Ukrainian cameraman I worked with more than 10 years ago on a Ukrainian TV station. And another one is a Fox News cameraman. Fox News cameraman Pierre Shashevsky has died in Ukraine. Uh, he was working with our Benjamin Hall when incoming fire hit their vehicle outside of Kyiv. The picture you see I right here. I met him in Kyiv in early February. He filmed an interview with me for Fox News in, in central Kyiv. So we just met briefly. We spoke and he seemed a very nice person. And, you know, knowing that this person is in a war, of course, is like really heartbreaking and devastating. And also knowing that so many other journalists also you know, died in this war and that very often they were deliberately targeted. Their lives w were lost, like, you know, not by accident. They were like professional war reporters who covered many other conflicts before in other parts of the globe. And they were, you know, wearing all the protective equipment, helmets and bulletproof vests and the recognition marks, so like press marks. And their cars were marked clearly as TV, press, journalists. However, that didn't help, you know, and maybe on the contrary, they might have been targeted because they are journalists. We don't know, of course, we can't be sure about that. There should be an investigation probably after the war is over because I cannot imagine how to investigate it, especially in the areas that are under Russian control. And, and these are the areas where these journalists, most of them died in the suburbs of Kyiv. However, you know what, even from the little we know about the circumstances of their death, it seems that they were deliberately targeted by Russian military that wants to hide the truth about what is happening here and to prevent the world from knowing what is happening. And journalists are 
you know, risking their lives to tell the story and to tell what they see here in Ukraine. And some other colleagues were also kidnapped. A colleague from Hromatske, independent Ukrainian TV station, I worked at for six years. Um, so the colleague from Hromatske, Victoria Roshina, she was kidnapped in southern Ukraine, in Berdansk, that is currently under control of Russian forces. And uh, she was released after several days, and she told the story, you know, how she was mistreated by Russian special forces. And actually, she was very lucky that she was released after being forced to record the video in which she thanked Russians for saving her life. But it's not the case with all journalists. And some Ukrainian journalists, not just Ukrainian, uh, they disappeared. They were likely kidnapped. We didn't know anything about their whereabouts. Another colleague from Hromatske, photographer Max Levin, who is one of the most experienced Ukrainian war photographers. You know, he's been covering war since 2014. He's been to a lot of hotspots in Donbass. He disappeared in Kyiv region back on March 12th. A longtime contributor to Reuters, his body was found in a village north of Kyiv on April 1st. It was reported that Russia had a list of Ukrainian civil society leaders, uh, activists, journalists that it intended to imprison or even execute. And there are reports also of these forced disappearances of local journalists in southern Ukraine, especially, and the blackmail also when their family members are kidnapped and journalists are blackmailed, you know, and basically made to renounce what they are due or, or quit uh, their media because their loved ones are threatened. I don't know whether I am on those lists, but I think that the existence of this list is actually very likely. Like, of course, we cannot be 100% sure, but this is like what Russia has been doing previously, also in the occupied Donbass since 2014, where journalists and activists were disappearing, put in secret prisons, tortured, you know, subjected to all sorts of inhumane treatment and kept there for years. So knowing all that, you know, I'm not ready to like renounce or give up my work as a journalist. But of course, I have to take precautions, first of all, to protect my family members, not even, you know, myself. And also knowing that recently Russia has been kidnapping the family members of journalists in, in southern Ukraine, in Melitopol. So knowing all that, of course, you know, I have to be cautious and taking care of the safety of my loved ones. I'm not afraid. I do not feel fear in general. I mean, since the war began, what I feel is more, you know, like determination and uh, very firm understanding and confidence about the importance of my work. That as a journalist, I have to stay in Ukraine. I have to report on what is happening. If I have, you know, also this privilege of speaking foreign languages and I can address the public in different parts of the world, then I should invest all my effort in telling the world what is happening in Ukraine. And I only, you know, will be kind of entitled to do so if I am in Ukraine. And sometimes it's also a difficult choice when you have, uh, you know, children, because on the one hand, there is a, a safety of your child and some sort of like a possibility to return some sort of a normal life 
to your child in terms of like going maybe to another country where is no war, where a child can go to school, where, you know, your child can develop normally as children her age do. And then on the other hand, there is like my career as a journalist and also my desire. It's more than just a career. You know, it's like my personal, like profound desire to continue working as a journalist and telling what is happening. If I have this possibility, if I have this voice that people listen to and they find what I'm saying valuable, then I can't just abandon that. And also as a citizen, it's my contribution to Ukraine's resistance because I'm not just a Ukrainian journalist, I'm a Ukrainian citizen and what is happening in my country affects me personally. And if I can contribute somehow to the resistance of the country that I love and about whose fate I care deeply because I never wanted to live anywhere else and I see my future and the future of my child in Ukraine. And if I can contribute somehow to this resistance by speaking up, I'm determined to do that. Проголосити 24 серпня 1991 року Україну незалежною демократичною державою. Back in 1991 I was 6 years old. The independence of Ukraine was proclaimed in August that year and in December 1991, December 1, there was a referendum in Ukraine people headed to the polls to confirm whether they support the independence of Ukraine. And we lived in a small town in Western Ukraine with my parents and my sister. And I remember that day that they took me at the polling station with them. And of course, like I knew that they were going to vote in support of Ukraine's independence. And, you know, well, being six year old, I, I didn't really understand like profoundly what it meant. But I remember this feeling of pride with which they told me that they would vote for Ukraine's independence. And it made me realize this is something very important, you know, that they really cared about, that they cherished, and that this is something that we have to kind of be proud of and preserve and, you know, fight for. And then as I was growing up, numerous occasions presented themselves to fight for this independence and to fight actually for Ukraine as a democratic country. When I was a student in Kyiv, like I moved to, to Kyiv at the age of 17 to study at the university. Um, so when I was a third year student, the Orange Revolution erupted in Ukraine. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election pitting their candidate, the West-leaning challenger Viktor Yushchenko, against the pro-Moscow Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych. This was the first revolution that I witnessed, a peaceful protest that lasted for three weeks. People were protesting against uh, rigged elections. Um, these elections were rigged in favor of a pro-Russian candidate, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, there were a lot of electoral violations, and I actually witnessed them with my own eyes because I was an election observer in Luhansk region during the second round of elections, and I was expelled from the polling station uh, so that I wouldn't be there when the vote count was conducted and couldn't, you know, note and report these violations during the vote count. And a lot of people didn't accept this result, obviously, because they knew that the elections were rigged and there were 
so many violations with the vote count and multiple voting by the same people on different stations. A lot, a lot of reports also of intimidation of uh, electoral observers. And even in our team who traveled to Luhansk, there were people who were taken from the polling stations and, you know, brought to the forest and uh, made like some shots from pneumatic weapons next to their heads in order to scare off like these observers and, you know, intimidate them so they do not report what was actually happening. So the popular uprising erupted, and for three weeks, people were protesting in the center of Kiev at Maidan, the central square, the independent square of Kiev. And I was there volunteering, uh, distributing leaflets, because that was the time when we didn't have smartphones yet, 2004, and people were getting the news from traditional media mostly, people who were camping on the square for weeks in November, October, November, like freezing temperatures. They didn't have access to TV or radio, so there was a volunteer initiative to print the news and the leaflets and volunteers, and I was one of them, were just distributing these leaflets to people who were camping on the square, speaking with them, you know, interacting with them, like exchanging our views. So it was, a, in a way, like a formative experience for me as a young aspiring journalist, a student of journalism, because I saw this, you know, big manifestation of people's will if they shoot us, if they send tanks, no matter what, there's nothing that can overpower the will of the people. And the people can make a difference because in the end, the revolution was successful. Protesters achieved their goals and there was a, a third round of elections in which uh, in a transparent vote, a pro-Western candidate, Viktor Yushchenko won. These are the scenes that triggered the breakup of Ukraine. Scenes that have brought the world to the brink of a new Cold War. Unarmed protesters gunned down in the streets by the riot police who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan Square. Then in 2014, I wasn't a volunteer anymore. <laughs> I was already working as a journalist. Um, actually, I, I quit a job in the middle of the revolution because I was working at one of like big, Ukrainian TV stations that was owned by an oligarch, Krinat Akhmetov. And initial coverage of this TV station of the protests was not very balanced. It was like really, you know, skewed. I was given guidance and censored by my superiors at that TV station because they were saying, like, I cannot report, for example, what the then U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said in support a, of the a, protesters. Disaster. Like, what has already happened is a brazen act of aggression in violation of international law, in violation of the UN Charter, in violation of the Helsinki Final Act, in violation of the 1997 Ukraine-Russia basing agreement. Russia has uh, engaged in uh, a military act of aggression against another country. And they said, well, we are not reporting, we are not like given this quote because this is against our editorial policy. And of course, like I... I couldn't like tolerate that because that was like pure censorship. And when the first protesters were killed in Maidan, like and on the day I like resigned, I said like, I quit this job without like knowing where I will be working and whether there will be like another, you know, like, medium that I can join. But I just couldn't like tolerate this because uh, I was feeling that journalists have a responsibility, you know, and their coverage, it is influencing, it is having an impact on millions of people. 
who trust this coverage and who trust these journalists who might not be, you know, thinking that they are being lied to. And I didn't want to be a part of this like lie machine. Well, of course, Ukrainian TV back in 2014 or 13 still is nothing compared to Russian TV, which is like complete lies and propaganda. But even, you know, in this, maybe for someone it would seem like tiny thing. Okay, we're not giving a quote of John Kerry. Who cares? But for me, it was like significant, you know, because it, it meant that there are topics that we cannot report on. And this is something that I couldn't accept as a journalist. And especially when I saw that people are getting killed and the coverage is still trying to portray them, not for what they really are, you know, peaceful protesters who are fighting for their rights, but the coverage is kind of trying to portray them as some violent, uh, marginals, radicals, whatever. So I couldn't like put up with that. And not just me, like there were several journalists who also like resigned um, on the day when it was clear that the coverage is is really not going to change, like not going to, to be objective. And we are seeing that the situation is deteriorating. And I decided, well, okay, like I'm quitting and I'm not going back to, to oligarch-owned media. In April, I went to Hromatske, this new TV station that was launched basically in simultaneously with the beginning of the Revolution of Dignity. It was a coincidence, in fact, like some of my colleagues, I wasn't one of the founders of Hromatske, but some of my colleagues from like previous work experience, they were launching this new TV station and it became like really famous and very trusted during the Maidan protest because it was broadcasting live, live streaming, you know, the protests uh, 24-7. And for a lot of people, it was like a primary source of information about the protest because, as I said, like the oligarchic owned TV stations, the coverage was edited, uh, some things were omitted, some things were not reported, and people were aware of that. You know, people in Ukraine, they knew that they cannot trust the the big, the mainstream media. So they turned to the smaller independent outlets that appeared before or simultaneously with the, with the protests. And Hromatsky was one of them. And, and, you know, it didn't have like any funding, like no big businesses who were owning it. They It was owned by the editorial staff, like group of journalists who launched this project and they launched an appeal, a crowdfunding campaign, basically. And for, I think, the first year almost of Romatsky existence, it was relying on people's donations because, as I said, so many people watched it during Maidan. It was so trusted and people were willing to donate and to support this independent TV station because they saw a difference of how it it was covering the events. And the strength was actually in this like live stream. It was a live stream. It wasn't edited. So people could like see what is happening. They knew they can trust it because it was happening live. It wasn't, you know, some edited footage with some omissions and manipulations as, as other media reported the protests. And, uh, and of course, like, well, back in April, there was, yeah, a lot of like interest and trust towards Romatsky and a lot of people, you know, like were donating, but still like so many people worked there, volunteered, and I also went there as a volunteer and I said like, okay, I know you might not be like able to pay me, I have some savings, but I really want to join your team because I admire what you do. I want to be a part of your team. So, I, and I worked there for six years up until 2020. It was a great experience, very different from the ones that I had previously with, uh, you know, mainstream, big, uh, oligarchic-owned media because there was... Uh, a self-organization 
sometimes bordering on chaos because there wasn't, you know, a very clear hierarchy inside and and even you know the editor-in-chief was like one of us like of course there were no like censorship or orders and that's why like when i'm saying that we had debates in newsroom when the war started those were like real debates and everyone could have a say and you know you, you were feeling you are part of this a very vibrant dynamic team and a lot of those that team were people uh, who are coming from Donbass, like internally displaced people, journalists, or people who were not journalists before, but they <laughs> decided they want to be, and they came to Hromatsky, and Hromatsky was like basically accepting everyone, <laughs> paying very little <laughs> because didn't have didn't have enough resources, but a lot of people were okay with that because it kind of you felt that you were a part of something big of this n- new independent media that was, you know, telling the story of Ukraine that is undergoing some very dramatic, transformative events, historic events. And and those debates were really heated. And I remember um, one of the most heated debates when the war started was like, should we refer to Ukrainian soldiers as our soldiers? Should we use this pronoun our? Because, you know, we are journalists. And okay, they are Ukrainians. And of course, like we as citizens support them. But can we call them our soldiers? Because, you know, well, this is the war. We have to be neutral. We have to report. And and that was like one of those debates. And actually, it's interesting that, of course, like every newsroom and every like media, they approach this reporting on war in their own way. And there were some TV stations in Ukraine that were actually adopting this very like patriotic uh, stance in you know telling reporting the war who were actually using our soldiers some ukrainian media they were reporting in a more kind of emotional i don't know if i can say partial way and then of course there were pro russian tv stations where the our guys were different ones <laughs> So, like, generally speaking, if, like, we are assessing whether there was a freedom of speech in in Ukraine between 2014 and February 24, 2022, I think there was. There was, definitely. And that is mostly due to this diversity of the media scene in Ukraine. There was, like, a variety of pluralism. So, when this war is over and Russian war criminals are taken into account, those who gave orders to, you know, bomb civilians and kill children, I I hope there would be also a a separate investigation and a trial into the role of Russian propagandists and all this. And also, I think other countries should draw lessons from that. Because if it goes uncountered for so many years, then eventually it can lead to terrible atrocities that we are seeing here. Silence is hosted by me, Nicola Kelly, and produced by Christopher Hooton. Original music is by Julian Wharton, and the sound design is by Rick Morris. Special thanks to Olga Tokayuk for speaking to me. Now, I promise this next thing will take less than five seconds. We would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review of the podcast wherever you're listening. It really does help other people to find us. And if you'd like to hear more about what Article 19 does, drop us a note on Twitter, where we're at Article19.org. Thanks for listening.